Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at artists and activists and their creative pursuits, as well as producing articles on politics and entertainment. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister producer Marshall Brown and by our artist activist of the show, ecologist, botanist, and environmental scientist, Teresa Scholers. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the snap sessions website the snap sessions.com and also the link in our show notes thanks to our snappist maximus contributors ron huxbrook and rick and henny newman and to our supportive snappers ellen athens peter and sheila jowers kathy white dominie jowers john bird gabriel geiger and christine samus other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today. Reigns at second, the tying run, the winning run at first base, and that's Jaha. But it's tough for him to negotiate that distance in very much quick time. The only way signs can avoid that problem is to take it deep and then has no idea that's going to happen it may have happened there's a swing and a deep drive way back into left center field and it's gone Ornado Sainz has beaten the Giants on the three-run homer the A's are pulling out of the dugout the Athletics have won the ball game by a score of 11 to 9 holy Toledo what a finish This story is from a recent NPR broadcast with the sad news that the Oakland A's are likely moving to Las Vegas at the end of this season. This is a tragedy for the city of Oakland and for fans of their favorite team of the past 55 years. How could this have happened? The Athletics started way back in Philadelphia back in 1860 when an amateur team, the Athletic Club of Philadelphia, was formed. When the American League came into being in 1903, the Athletics, already being managed by Connie Mack, a manager who always wore street clothes and not a baseball uniform, joined the league. After New York Giants manager John McGraw told reporters that Philadelphia owner Benjamin Scheib had a, quote, white elephant on his hands, unquote, team manager Connie Mack defiantly adopted the white elephant as the team mascot and presented McGraw with a stuffed toy elephant at the start of the 1905 World Series. They had many great teams under Connie Mack, who managed them from 1901 to 1950, when he retired at the age of 87. They won the World Series in 1910, 11, and 13, and had a tremendous team from 1929 into the early 1930s, anchored by Hall of Famers Jimmy Fox, Mickey Cochran, Al Simmons, and Lefty Grove. No matter. By 1954, the Athletics had moved to Kansas City, leaving Philadelphia to the Phillies. And then in 1960, they were bought by an insurance salesman named Charlie Finley. Finley had a flair for self-promotion and was inspired by baseball eccentric Bill Veck, who had formerly owned the St. Louis Browns, the Cleveland Indians, and eventually the Chicago White Sox. Veck is the guy who sent a midget up to pinch hit on one occasion, 
guaranteeing him a walk to first base. Over time, Finley would do some quirky stuff of his own. He tried to introduce orange baseballs to the game, although this didn't work as batters had trouble picking up the spin. He also introduced a mechanical rabbit named Harvey, who would pop out of the ground to deliver new balls to the umpire at home plate. And during the swinging A's era of the early 1970s, Finley offered players $300 bonuses to grow mustaches. For one, reliever Raleigh Fingers, this proved to be auspicious as his handlebar stash became his trademark. But Charlie Finley was also a clever judge of talent and had been slowly rebuilding his baseball team as they headed for Oakland. During the late 1960s to early 70s, he brought up Reggie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue, Sal Bando, Campy Campaneris, and Joe Rudy, amongst others, all players who would make a difference in this era, where Oakland won three World Series in a row. Here's the final out of their 1972 World Series win over the Cincinnati Reds. And flat out deep to center again. He's been hitting the last three games. Two down. Last of the ninth, three to two Oakland. There's a fly ball here in the deep left center. Joe Rudy there. Oakland has won the 1972 World Series. They have won three of the four games played in Cincinnati. By the mid-1970s, the ominous specter of free agency began to overwhelm Finley's payroll as ace pitcher Catfish Hunter was lost. And then Finley began trading players. First slugger Reggie Jackson and star pitcher Ken Holtzman and then others were moved on to richer teams like the New York Yankees and Baltimore Orioles. By the end of the 1976 season, most of the A's stars had left the team as free agents. A long, simmering Vita Blue wished Finley dead and then moved on to the SF Giants in 1978. But Finley continued to look for younger and cheaper talent. In the late 1970s, they scouted and then signed Mike Norris, Tony Armas, and most importantly, future Hall of Famer, Oakland's own Ricky Henderson. And then the A's started to show life again under their new manager, former Yankee skipper Billy Martin. The A's came close to winning it all in 1980, and attendance improved. At the end of the 1980 season, Finley sold the A's to the Haas family, owners of Levi Strauss, and Martin proved to be an excellent base running coach for young Henderson who began his rise to be the greatest base dealer in baseball history. Ricky Henderson, Ricky Henderson, Ricky Henderson. She's running, pitch taken, Harry Strauss, save. At one nothing deficit, Ricky goes, a pitch taken, he's going to have it, no, save, second base. I'm the greatest of all time, thank you. A two-out, Liriano ducks in, Ricky's going, pitches high, he's with 937 steals. Now to the belt. And the pitch, he's running. Pitch taken, Harry Strauss. Save at second base. And Ricky Henderson joins Lou Brock. 938. Billy Martin was now being touted for his Billy Ball, an aggressive style of play and the A's exploded out of the blocks at the beginning of the 1981 season, having a record of 20 wins 
and only three losses in early May. But their momentum was checked by the 1981 baseball strike, which locked down baseball for two months. This led to an unusual situation where the leaders of each half of the season, the A's and the KC Royals, had to face each other. The A's won in three games, but then fizzled and went on to lose to the Yankees in the ALCS. Suddenly, it all went south in 1982 as Billy Martin was accused of wearing out his starting pitchers and landing the team in fifth place. Martin was fired with three years left on his contract, having had a series of off-field incidents, including some bouts of heavy drinking and the bullying of closeted outfielder Glenn Burke. The last straw came when Martin trashed his own office after team officials refused him a loan to pay a tax debt. Noted baseball statistician Bill James wrote that Billy Martin, of course, improved every team he managed in his first year of control, usually by huge margins. But within a year or two, all of those teams were ready to get rid of him. But the A's were nothing if not resilient. By the late 1980s, they had built a team of sluggers that became known as the Bash Brothers, built around players like Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Dave Henderson, as well as recently returned Ricky Henderson, and a pitching staff starring Bob Welsh and Oakland's own Dave Stewart. And in manager Tony La Russa, they had a superb leader. Little did we all know, but Canseco and McGuire were juicing it. In other words, they were using steroids. Here's a drive to right center field. That is really hit. It's well back. And there is home run number 100 for Mark McGuire. Mark. Here. And there's a drive to center. Back goes Shelby to the wall. It is gone. Grand slam home run for Jose Canseco. And look where he hit it. Over the center field fence, a line drive. It didn't get up. It didn't get down. It just got out. We talked about it. They have about five guys on that lineup with one swing can turn the game. High drive up the alley in left center field. And this one is going to be gone. However, steroids or not, the A's were still deadly, and they left my beloved SF Giants in the rubble in the 1989 World Series, crushing them four games to none. In fact, they were literally in the rubble, as there was an earthquake at Candlestick Park just before Game 3 started. Let's hear shocked announcer Al Michaels describe this dramatic moment. Allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at... Second base, so the Oakland A's take. Take. I'll tell you what, we're having a great. Well, I don't know if we're on the air. We are in commercial, I guess.
We hear you. I guess I don't hear a thing. I guess Dave Parker. Well, I don't know if we're on the air or not, and I'm not sure I hear at this moment, but we are. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. Yes, it certainly did. We're still here. We are still, as we can tell, on the air, and I guess you are hearing us, even though we have no picture and no return audio, and we will be back, we hope, from San Francisco in just a moment. The Bash Brothers LaRusa teams were competitive into the mid-1990s, and then things began to fizzle again. As general manager Sandy Alderson began to transition away, his protege, former player Billy Bean, stepped up. Under the Haas family, the A's had appeared in three straight World Series into the early 90s. But the new ownership team of Schott and Hoffman ordered drastic payroll cuts for the team. Bean began to work around it by using the statistical orientation he had learned from Alderson. Bean and his minions began studying sabermetric principles, which valued undervalued players' abilities and their on-base percentages. The new strategy turned Oakland around, and they were once again competitive with the teams of 2000 through 2006, appearing in the playoffs five of those seven years. And in the movie Moneyball, which proved to be a hit sports movie, Billy Bean was played by Brad Pitt. Here's a short section from Moneyball, where sabermetrics is explained first by Jonah Hill's character, economics whiz kid, Peter Brand, and then by Billy Bean, <clears throat> I mean Brad Pitt, to star outfielder David Justice. When you're getting your pitch, you're hitting 625, which is massive. You're crushing, crushing the ball. But when you're swinging things, you know, that your pitch is middle in. And when you're swinging low and away and stuff, you're batting 158. Every at-bat's like a hand of blackjack. Every card that's dealt, your odds completely change. So every first pitch strike, your batting average goes down about 75 points. 75 points? He should be throwing 100 pitches before the fifth inning. I'm gonna knock that starter out and eat deep into their bullpen. I want you to take in at bats off the 10th and 11th pitcher by the end of the series. This is your basic breakdown of all the location of pitches, where you should be hitting them, why you should be hitting them. So he wants to walk more? Good question. Yes. Mr. Justice, had a few thoughts. Yeah? Yeah. Can you teach me some things? Excuse me? Never seen a GM talk to players like that, man. You never seen a GM who was a player. Huh. We got a problem, David? No, nah, it's okay. I know your routine. It's patter. It's for effect. But it's for them. Alright? That's me. Oh, you're special. Paying me seven million bucks a year, man, so yeah. Maybe I am a little bit. No, man, I ain't paying you seven. Yankees are paying half your salary. That's what the New York Yankees think of you. They're paying you three and a half million dollars to play against them. Where are you going with this, Billy? David, you're 37. How about you and I be honest about what each of us want out of this? I want to milk the last ounce of baseball you got in you. And you want to stay in the show. Let's do that. Now, I'm not paying you for the player you used to be. I'm paying you for the player you are right now. You're smart. You get what we're trying to do here. 
Make an example for the younger guys. Be a leader. You can do that. All right. I got you. The A's stayed competitive in the second decade of our new century, appearing in the playoffs from 2012 to 2014, and again from 2018 through the COVID-shortened 2020 season. COVID has definitely hurt the team, though, and its attendance, but not so badly as its incredibly non-supportive ownership. Over the years... Few teams have faced so many problems with their stadium and the competition from the football team, the Oakland Raiders. When the A's arrived in Oakland back in 1968, they shared the Coliseum with the Raiders, and it did take a few years to build a fan base. Even after fielding those marvelous 1972 through 74 teams, they had to compete with the San Francisco Giants across the bay, who had arrived from New York back in 1958, and the Coliseum was never just a baseball park. Still, by 1981, during the Billy Ball era, they reached 1.3 million, and for the next 37 years, till 2019, they were never below 1 million, and in fact, had 12 years over 2 million. Admittedly, COVID presented attendance problems few of us could anticipate. The Raiders proved to be petulant co-tenants. Spoiled brat Al Davis moved the team to L.A. in 1982, and then moved them back to Oakland in 1995. Sadly, the city of Oakland bent over backwards to accommodate the Raiders, expanding the stadium to over 63,000 seats. The bucolic site of the Oakland foothills that baseball spectators enjoyed was replaced with a jarring view of an outfield grandstand contemptuously referred to as Mount Davis after the Raiders' owner. And because construction was not finished by the start of the 1996 season, the Athletics were forced to play their first six-game homestand at 9,300-seat Cashman Field in Las Vegas, Nevada. And none of this was considered by the Raiders when they moved on to Las Vegas themselves in 2020. Assholes. Over the course of their 55 years in Oakland, the A's have often had brilliant announcers. From 1981 through 1995, they had two of my favorite all-time play-by-play guys, Lon Simmons and Bill King. Simmons eventually returned to his first team, the SF Giants, for the twilight of his career. But King stayed with the A's until he died in 2005. The A's have had others, but this era combined Simmons' acerbic wit with King's passion and intelligence to be one of the great announcing teams of all time. Here's Lon describing the last out of the A's 1989 sweep of the Giants in the World Series. The one strike pitch. Swung on bounce. Off McGuire's glove. Phillips has it. Throws accurately in time. Another great play by Cody Phillips. And the A's have won the World Series in a sweep. As I write this, it looks like the Oakland A's will soon be joining the Oakland Raiders in Las Vegas. It strikes me as ludicrously unfair that Las Vegas is getting teams with loyal fan bases in the East Bay. Whenever a team moves to another city, literally millions of fans are heartbroken. This will also be the case if these moves go through. I have been a Giants fan all my life, but I've always enjoyed the A's, and I've been to a fair number of A's games over the years. I've thought their recent plans to move to Howard Terminal Ballpark, a baseball-only stadium, near Jack London Square in Oakland, would have been perfect. To a Bay Area baseball fan, it makes sense. It's right across the bay from the Giants. And Oakland deserves better. 
I disagree with Gertrude Stein. There is a there in Oakland. But sadly, as Lon Simmons used to say, you can tell it goodbye. listening to snap sessions if you like what you heard please subscribe to us on patreon or buy me a coffee we depend on the support of listeners like you i am here with teresa solars teresa is an ecologist environmentalist outdoor educator mycologist i know you wouldn't call yourself one but no. um i sort of think of you you're a lupin expert True. And you're a community asset uh, for our area here in Mendocino County. Uh, it's great to have you on Snap Sessions, Teresa. Thank you. I taught a couple of your boys. Um, I taught Forrest and Robbie, and that was back in, I think, the early 90s. I had them for seventh grade math. Right. Which meant that you had to put up with me as their seventh grade math teacher. You're probably a little nervous. Actually, not at all nervous because Robbie said the best math class he ever has was when you taught the class because everybody was had to be used car salesmen and you put math in context of life and besides they got to dress up so yeah. you know, what, <laughs> that's right i remember that we had a whole used car yep, sales yep, unit. so yeah. it's probably the only time robbie had fun in math yeah that's great <laughs> oh that's wonderful well um 
I I know you've you've been involved in nature and gardening, etc., all your life. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what got you interested in nature from an early age? Sure, I was born and raised in Fresno. Fourth generation. My mother's best friend had a son who had a, a pack station and cow camp, and they wanted somebody to help the wife with her brand new baby. And I was ten, so this is 1962. And so they asked me up to near Yosemite in the in Sierra National Forest to help with the baby. Not good with babies, but I was really great with horses and dogs. So I ended up helping the, the husband, Mike, for the next like 14 years to help on a pack station and be a wrangler and lead people to giant sequoias and on pack trips. And my love of just wild environment really got solidified. And my love of animals, and people would always ask me the name of plants. When I first started out, I'd, you know, make up the names. <laughs> Did you make up Latin-sounding oh, names? Oh, no, no, I didn't even under. I mean, I was 10, mm-hmm. you know, so no, I just named up, made up names. And then Pack Station had a book, and so I'd start figuring out the names of the common plants and flowers. And ranchers and cowboys knew the names of the trees, so I knew all the names of the trees, and I learned the names of the shrubs so that as... I walked, you know, led people on horseback through the forest. I could, I could give people the names of the plants. And, you know, I did that until I was uh, at school at Davis and one of the camp owners or directors uh, had moved to Colorado and YMCA and asked if I wanted to come out there and be the nature director. And I said, great, because- So this was like in 20, you're in college. Yep. Well, I'm more like 19, 20. Okay. Yes. In the summers in Colorado, I, for two summers, was the nature director. And then the third summer, he asked me to run their backpacking camp in the Rockies there. So we, it was in the Pikes Peak Y. So I did that for three summers. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. And so I did that, you know, until my senior year, I met my husband-to-be on a backpack at Prairie Creek Redwoods, and uh, we got married the next fall when uh, we were both in graduate school. I was getting my master's in ecology, and he was getting his Ph.D. in botany. So this is early 70s. This is, yeah, 1970 to 1974. I was at Davis for undergraduate work, and I got my degree, my master's in a year, actually, in environmental uh, planning and management? Yes, environmental planning and management, EPM, and they had four distinct subcategories, and my subcategory was environmental education. Interesting. And okay. I was, and at that point, that was a time where they were making a law that you had to have outdoor education schools. And when I started working in my graduate year with environmental education, my last year at college there in EPM environmental planning and management it was clear that I enjoyed working with kids but I was so much more interested in the subject matter that the, I couldn't quite get past it well actually I went to um, a South Pacific play at Shasta Community College my senior year and one of my friends at Davis was in the play but I, I'm a big musical fanatic and I went up there and then I figured out that community colleges, all you need is a master, and there are community colleges all over California in rural areas. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get my master's, get my master's in ecology, teach college, 
try to do as much as I can outside, you know, bringing that to everyone. And that's what I did. Basically, I got my master's in ecology from Davis and Rob was getting his PhD and we both worked on the pygmy forest for our degrees. Okay, and so well, we moved here. That definitely requires further <laughs> explanation. So here you are, you're interested in rural areas. Of course, Mendocino County is rural. We also have this really anomalous situation. We have this extraordinary area called the pygmy forest. Right. And um, by the way, uh, Teresa is petting Lupin, her dog, <laughs> who is just saying hi to me, too. Lupin is a very good-natured animal. So Lupin is nine years old, right? Yes, she is. Um, uh, so you end up coming to the North Coast, and we have this pygmy forest. How, how did you become interested in the pygmy? And then tell us some of the things you learned and, in fact, helped educate people on about the pygmy forest. So um, here we are at Davis. Uh, Rob is starting his Ph.D., his first year in the Ph.D. program. I'm starting my master's degree. And he also loved to grow plants, so he thought we both been up here for a weekend. We camped. We camped off of Compsukaya Road, and we note the pygmy forest was here. It was interesting, but what actually piqued um, Rob's interest, it was a great place to grow rhododendrons. So he thought... Rhododendrons, of course, being an acid-loving plant, yes, right? Acid-soil-loving exactly. plant. Yes, mm -hmm. and as you can see, if you look out there, we planted all these rhododendrons from 4-H pots, and so there's one, what, 30 feet tall and we, gorgeous. We are looking at a massive <laughs> rhododendron, yes. and now that it's April, it's filled with pink yeah. flowers, yes. so it's gorgeous. So anyway, that year in 1974, when we were trying to figure out what, what I was going to do for my master's thesis and what he was going to do for his Ph.D., we both kind of said, well, a pygmy forest, nobody really knows, you know, people aren't sure why the plants are short. And a lot of the times people have have kind of thought it was hard pan or had to do with, you know, dry in the summer and wet in the winter. And so we decided that we would basically have that as our subject matter. And so we would spend weekends uh, coming up to Mendocino, and we wanted to buy land, and we met Bud Cam of the realtor office there. Yes, yeah, so he was a longtime realtor here in yes. Mendocino, and so you yeah. ended up looking for land. And he let us um, camp at this property of the, the Kelly family, which is a well-known family in Mendocino. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There were like 30 of them that owned small pieces of small parts of this property two and a half miles up the Compton Ukai Road. So we camped there for a year while we um, started our research and while we looked around for property. We actually tried to buy it, but all 30 of those people could not. We ended up buying the place that we, I live now, so I've lived here since 1975. This is a 20-acre parcel. Uh, we bought three 20-acre parcels, oh my, each okay. one for mm -hmm. 17000 each, mm -hmm. which now I own two of them. Rob was uh, killed. I ended up selling the third one to you know, help send my kids to college. Right. Uh, but so now I own two 20s, basically. Mm -hmm. We moved up here in the pygmy forest was something that he decided, uh, his, his work basically found out that um, the soil in the pygmy, especially the part that he studied, was wet all year round. And so it never 
was drought stress. So it was not any drought stress that had anything to do with that. Uh, what I studied was whether the hard pan, you know, 100% created the short trees. And, and basically I dug a thousand holes and found that the hard pan was discontinuous. So it didn't, it wasn't the only influence there in the, in the pygmy. Um, he was able to publish his data, but my data, this is pre-computers, <laughs> was all in our home that burnt down in 1980. Oh so yeah. I was actually not, never able to publish that. In fact, I'm working right now with a colleague to, to publish his stuff, publish my stuff um, in a paper. Um, because years later, I worked with Department of Fish and Wildlife and Cal California Native Plant Society. And we ended up um, classifying the pygmy forest into a bunch of different associations and alliances and ranking them as one of the rarest plant communities in the world. And it's kind of been renamed the Mendocino Cypress Woodland because this Mendocino Cypress occurs in areas where sometimes they're short and sometimes they're tall. And it's not just that you've got an area that's just little short trees. So anybody who lives here, if you actually looked at the situation, you could see that there's a whole bunch of diversity. And that's one of the things that we ended up, you know, finding out, classifying them. And then they got ranked at least for, you know, some uh, environmental protection. And we should mention for those who, uh, who haven't seen the pygmy forest, if you come to the pygmy, suddenly you're looking at a bunch of many trees that can vary from three or four feet to maybe six or eight feet. And this is like footprints across the area around you will then be, for example, right now we're looking at, you know, stands of forest around us, which are cypress, redwood, dug fir, and a variety of other conifers. Everything but cypress, actually. Okay, okay, everything but cypress. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm getting corrected by somebody who knows her forestry. <laughs> and then there will be, in a pygmy area, little areas that are almost like fingers of, of, of an ecosystem where you have these tiny trees. And they're growing out of hard pan. It's been there for between half a million and a million years or so. Right? Yeah, kind of. So let me just kind of back up there. Um, Please. So the, the Mendocino Cypress Woodland Pygmy Forest occurs on flat terraces that have been uplifted in the ocean. And basically, a flat terrace means that there has been rainfall in an area for hundreds of thousands of years, and that helps create acidity when all the basic minerals have been leached out. So the only places that these occur, these ecosystems, are on these flat terraces that are broad enough to have a very old soil. So this old soil, and they're never, they're never downhill from anything. They're always uphill. Every time you're in a Mendocino cypress woodland or pygmy, you're going to walk down before you go back up to redwood forest. So the redwood forests around here are on the slopes and on the, the floodplains of the rivers. And this Mendocino cypress woodland are on these broad staircase-like terraces. And in some places, there are five of them. In some cases, there are three of them. All you have to do is bicycle like up Little Lake Road. You go up for a while, and then it's flat. You go up for, for a while, and then it's flat. Now, that's all all up and down the coast between, like, the Navarro River and Fort Bragg. And so you actually have these terraces 
that in some cases were uplifted flat and not tilted. Once they're tilted, then you get the regular, you know, redwood forest on them. So it's it's really these terraces. And if the terrace is very, like we're on a, a ridge between Russian Gulf here, yeah. which is right down behind my barn, uh-huh. and Jack Peters Creek on the other side. And it's flat here, but it's not wide enough to have been pygmy forest mm-hmm. um, because you actually have drainage coming out. Yeah. So... Yeah. I should mention we are sitting in Teresa's garden right here. It's a sunny spot. She's got some, are those apples and pear trees there? Um, right in front of us, all of that are kiwis. Okay. So oh, that my. whole thing okay. is kiwis and then an orchard of apples and pears and peaches. Everything except the garlic has, and the artichokes has all reseeded because I'm trying to work in kind of a perennial sustainable garden that I don't have to do a lot of planting. Yeah. Well, good. She has a domestic side of her of her planting <laughs> yes. as well as her, her natural side. For food. Now, right. So here you are. You're working on the pygmy with Rob. And uh, around 1978, you got your first uh, teaching job at Mendocino College. Is that correct? No. When I moved here in 1975, okay. my first job was working for EcoView. And I did the original botanical consulting for advisors. Okay. And so I stayed in and keen out plants in 1975. I also started with three community colleges, Mendocino College, College of the Redwoods, and Santa Rosa JC, which all were teaching courses here on the coast. And, you know, I did drive to Willits to teach for Mendocino College, drove to Point Arena to teach for Santa Rosa JC, and then I, I taught here in Fort Bragg from 1975 to 1980 as a part-time instructor here um, at College of the Redwoods, and they also the other two colleges. Meanwhile, Rob was working at the Bodie Nursery, Descanso Nursery there out Highway 20, um, working with rhododendrons and so growing rhododendrons. And so we both had these part-time jobs. When we left Davis, when we were both graduate students, we were also working part-time for American River College, and they offered both of us a full-time job there. But we kind of looked at do we want to stay in the Sacramento area with full-time work for both of us with air pollution in cities? Or did we want to move to Mendocino where there was no job, no full-time community college, and see what we could do? So that's what we did. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderfully impulsive. Yeah, that's great. So you ended up both up here, and you were whatever you, you did get part-time work. I, I worked part-time for all three colleges, and then in mm-hmm. 1980, I applied for the full-time position that Rob and I, he had been teaching horticulture classes, I had been teaching biology classes, so between the two of us, we kind of had a full-time load. So I basically advocated strongly <laughs> yeah. to get a full-time position and was luckily hired for that. And um, my first child, uh, Bryza, was born in 1979. We didn't have electricity here for five years. Um, yeah. And we just had a well and a generator. Um, and Bryza was born 1979. I got a full-time uh, job in 1980, spring of 1980. And uh, just a few weeks into that, our home burnt down. And, you know, we were actually on a field trip to the Branscombe Nature Preserve. And uh, so we lived in a tiny trailer. Bryza was in a tent in a, a crib that took up most of the tent. And, My and that's how we lived for that first year. Um, and while we rebuilt 
our home in, we just made it a barn. And then after that, we built a tiny house that instead of having a house, barn, wood shop, metal shop, everything in one, which is what burnt down, we decided we should separate all of our buildings, yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. what we did. Yeah. Was that for safety concerns? After yeah, the our down? home burnt down due to the um, short in a safety switch on the condenser of the Sears refrigerator. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. And so we just kind of, everything from then on, Rob built with external conduits and just a little bit anxious about fire, but it did not create a forest fire and we're not very far, those trees behind that barn, that's Russian Gold State Park. It happened on uh, Mother's Day. So it did not happen in a, you know, at a really dry time of year. Sure. And since this is a temperate rainforest, this fire did not cause any wildfire. Did you guys put it out yourself? Oh, gosh, no. We were coming back, and by the time we got here, we were away for the weekend. Um, it was completely put out by both the local fire department and, and Cal Fire, which was, you know, yeah. both. And they, nobody was even here by the time we got here. It was just a smoking mess. Oh, my. I was lucky because I had a full-time job, and our insurance company was actually very good to us. They, you know, paid us right out, and the local community was wonderful. We got all sorts of clothes and and at that point, the person at the dump back in the days, things were kind of different. She let everybody in free that was hauling ash and garbage from the fire. It's one of those wonderful things in a community. Something happens and everybody just rallied around us and helped us. Yeah. So I like that so much about having moved to a rural area, Mendocino especially, is that there are times when the community really comes together. We had a freezer load of food the only thing that was not good about that is everybody thought oh she she teach organic gardening and they kept giving us lasagna with walnuts and spinach and i kept thinking you know my kids would just like you know meat lasagna yeah exactly (laughs) of course yeah as they often do yes but you know you know we've been through many traumas here where the community has really stepped up to help me now it's a great thing to talk talking with you is you have so many areas of expertise one of them is you've written about wildflowers of the coniferous forests as well as coastal wildflowers. And I believe you actually discovered a lupin or you named a lupin. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> your your love of, of wildflowers, what got you into that, and then lead us toward the direction of, of the lupin. Sure, okay, okay. So 1975, when I was working part-time, you know, clearly what I really wanted to do is walk around in, in wild areas and teach. And so there were classes like wildflowers of the redwood forest. And so I, I taught those classes and they were very popular um, to teach the community about wildflowers. And I tended to have a great group of people out there, you know, people who work for Cal Fire or at that point CDF, or who work for state parks, who work for fish and wildlife, who just were older people who wanted to learn and that stimulated me creating a bunch of classes in natural history, everything from wildflowers to dendrology to mushrooms to lichens. When I became full-time, I created this certificate program of natural history. Then, um, and I did uh, my first, I was up for my first sabbatical in 86 and my, my husband Rob really felt that, you know, he said, you know, you really ought to go back and you know, get your PhD. And, you know, how am I going to do that? And he said, well, I'll help. And you, let's see if we can get you into, into Berkeley, which exactly, that's another long story of me not getting in and then getting in. But anyway, I got into UC Berkeley. And at that point, 
the UC Berkeley was just starting to think about redoing the California flora, except instead of having one author do it, they were going to have many authors do it. And so the head of the herbarium there and the project there, I was in graduate school at Berkeley while I was on sabbatical. Our family took a, a leave of absence here, went down to Berkeley, and um, I was asked if I would write the treatment for all the wild lupins in California. And when I had been at Davis, I had worked for a professor who worked on lupins, and I said, yeah, lupins, that sounds great. See, I had no idea that they'd been trying to get other people to work on lupins. There are, there are hundreds of lupin species and varieties, and so I didn't really realize how hard it would be. But that, in 1986, I was asked to do the California treatment for all, which means the keys and descriptions to, to lupins of California. And a little bit later, I was asked to do the same thing for North America. Great. And so um, I'm actually on my fourth rendition of California's lupins. The COVID is the only thing that allowed me to finish North America. Uh -huh. because North America is a big bite, a big chunk to chew off. And so the lupin work has all been above and beyond my, my full-time job at California Redwoods. Uh, when Rob was killed in the middle of my program but in a car accident. And so um, I was not able to finish my PhD. I, I, was in, I was going back and forth to Berkeley for six years, but it became clear that something had to go and it wasn't going to be my kids. <laughs> it right. wasn't going to be my full-time job. Yeah. So um, I did drop out of school, but I did uh, finish my treatment for California and then I've kept up with my lupin work over these decades. Um, so actually right this next month, right now I've got four things in press. One is the floor of North America treatment of lupins. One is a book called Lupins of California that I'm, I've done with a photographer that is just pretty pictures of lupins with my descriptions. One is lupins of Arizona, and the fourth is um, just another technical treatment. Of so yeah. anyway, that's how I got into lupins. So is there a lupin named after no, you? No, no, okay. you can't. I, I would have been the one to name it, and you can't name plants after yourself. Okay, I get that. I mean, there'd be a lot of people who were like, yes. I'm naming I mean, this after me. Yes, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so... Um, yeah, I named my dog Lupin, but I only yeah. did that. Her name is L-U-P-I-N, which is the common name for European lupins. Mm -hmm. European lupins are an agricultural crop that they have bred the alkaloids, the toxins out, so they're oh. not bitter. They're called sweet lupins. I see. So I named her Lupin because she's sweet. Oh, I love that. <laughs> now, I can't help but ask you, I thought of the Monty Python character. Oh, yeah, no, it, that, that was... Back back in the eighties, we right. all had we all watched that all the Monty Pythons that had there's lots of them that had to do with botany. Yes. But the one that had to do with lupins, no, I have the I have a VHS tape of that. Great, great. <laughs> I figured you might. Yes, no. where they're stealing lupins from the rich and giving them for it to the poor. But the yes. best part about that <laughs> is all of the people say, Oh my god, you know, and he comes out there. And he gets them all out there to steal their lupins, but he's saying, stand over there by the maple. And somebody else says, no, it's an ash. And they go, no, it's a maple. And then they 
They argue about whether it has pinnate and palmate leaves. So I've actually played that for my classes to say, see, the British humor has actually, you know, scientific names and descriptions. And if you said that to, you know, somebody in our country, that not only would they not know what a lupin was, but they wouldn't know what pinnate and palmate and yes. serrate and entire. So, you know, this is British humor, kind of with a high level of horticulture. Yes, and I, I have friends who actually helped support our Snap Sessions podcast who are... <laughs> Are lovers of the both Monty. lupins, Monty Python, oh, and, and plants in general. So yes. you, you will be in good company. <laughs> um, now, I also saw on your CV that you've been involved with forestry in different ways, and that early in your career, you owned and operated a 60-acre redwood Douglas fir forest for timber production. Tell us about this time in your life and how you how you made that work. Okay, well, so, I mean, it's our 68, especially when uh, we first started out, when before I was full-time, we really needed money, and we Rob sold vegetables to corners and down home. I had three jobs, four jobs, three jobs with three different community colleges, and I was doing botanical consulting. But the, the place had been logged, and a whole lot of the standing timber had been hit and wrecked by bulldozers and tractors as people had come in and come out. So Rob basically became the faller. We had a horse. We actually used him at first for horse logging. I was the person who actually would hook up the the logs to either the horse or later on we got a tractor Hmm. and we sold you know we sold about 10,000 board feet a year you know which of of the the individuals that actually were not going to do well and you know in some of the cases we took the smaller ones that were too crowded and so we did that um, up until Rob died, basically. You kind of cleaned up. Yeah, the, I mean, the area absolutely. That you had inherited. Yes. I see. Uh-huh. Well, the area that we bought and mm-hmm. you know struggled to maintain. We were able to try to make a living off the land and hopefully make it better by living by doing it. That's that was our attempt. And we also, both of us, botanist ecologists, we were really keeping up with what was happening in Jackson State Forest. And through the years, um, I was one of the whole reasons that they actually started putting gates on some of the roads because people were piling garbage in the road and, you know, and in the forest. And, you know, in terms of Jackson State Forest, if people have wood houses, we we did feel that, you know, you need to get it from someplace. And at that point, we just wanted people to look at sustainable logging. I mean, during that summer, Redwood summer where the protests were here and people were spiking trees. That was in the late 80s, I believe. It was, and we did this big forum where I was the moderator and Jerry Miller was on one side and who was the forester for Georgia Pacific, who famously died later on. I had loggers on the other side and I would moderate because one of the things I was trying very hard to do in my classes is not polarize people. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel so strongly that, that education pretty much the way to solve so many things you know so I worked really hard in the community to get people of all backgrounds especially of all backgrounds in in my classes and not to make people not want to be there because they thought I was going to be a ragged environmentalist who were stopping their jobs and you know all the people would come in with their trucks and you know hanging spotted owls kind of thing and Mm -hmm. it, it really has helped over the years to get further down the road of understanding ecology to get everybody into it to welcome 
Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. And I think that's uh, one of the things, is, you know, I understand of ecology is that if, if you look at your whole environment, you see how the whole environment works and how the various aspects of it, how do the plants work with the forest? How do the animals exist in the forest? And that the ecology is the whole environment. It, it is. Yeah, go ahead and talk to us well, a little bit about... I mean, mm-hmm. basically, it's the interrelationships between all the plants and animals and bacteria and fungi in, in the ecosystem. So it's all about relationships. And when I got my master's in 1975, um, I understood that everything affected everything else. And at that point, I didn't feel like I really understood much. You know, now almost 50 years later... Um, I actually feel the same way. I know a lot more, but there, there is so much that we humans absolutely don't understand. And we're finding out um, about the ecology of our forest systems. You can't operate a forest like a vegetable garden if you really want to have, yes. you know, the ecosystem animals and plants there. And so our cultural has, has had a hard time understanding the importance of anything but humans and so i think what i taught environmental science for years environmental science is understanding humans effects on the environment and ecology is a science that 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 studies the relationships between the physical environment and the biological environment and their roles especially those things when you when you take one thing out or one thing disappears how it how there's a domino effect throughout the ecosystem and and I must admit, almost every single class I teach, you know, even my current mushroom class where everybody wants to know what to eat, you know, really what I'm trying to do is teach them how important mushrooms and other fungi are for the forest ecosystem and, you know, how to go about harvesting with less impact and just kind of the, the subtle other stuff that to me is much more important than, you know, don't poison yourself eating something toxic. <laughs> sure, sure. Now, apropos um, mushrooms, um, I know you uh, have taught mushroom identification classes here at Mendocino yep. College. My wife, uh, Christine, and one of my land partners, Jeannie, are both avid fans of this class. And uh, I know you, you don't call yourself a mycologist. No. I understand that. But at the same time, you, you have enough expertise in it to lead people. We have a very mushroom-filled environment here. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what led you into this area. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. First of all, mycology is a study of fungi. Okay. 99% of those fungi don't have mushrooms. So okay. therefore, if you're a mycologist, you know, mushrooms are a tiny part. So I basically teach mushroom ID. And that's why when people call themselves mycologists, most of those people don't understand the science of mycology at all. That's why, because I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm a real nitpicky. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s, Miriam Rice, who was an icon of Mendocino, it's a textile artist, amazing woman. She came up to me and said, Teresa, we textile artists need a mushroom identification class because she says there are all these mushrooms you can use for dye, D-Y-E dye. Mm -hmm. She said, I need you to teach one. And I said, Miriam, I don't know anything about mushrooms. I've never taught mushrooms. I've never taken a mushroom class. I don't have never taken mycology. And she said, that doesn't matter. She says, you teach plant ID and you're smart. You can figure it out. There was no books in for California. All there was was Mushrooms in North America by Miller. Mm -hmm. So I got the book. I was about three steps ahead of some of the people and a couple steps behind because these women had been 
hunting mushrooms their entire lives using them in textiles. And so people would say, what is it? And I'd say, what do you think it is? <laughs> but, you know, that was in the 70s. I think I've taught about 34 different classes. And most of those, I didn't learn the substance of them in school. But that's, that's why it's been a wonderful career. Because you learn about them. And the books started coming out. And I would stay ahead of my students. And frankly, I just live here, walk in the woods. And I have taught myself all of the mushrooms. And as their name changes. And I have really learned, I started teaching with a real mycologist at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, Matteo Garbaletto, and he taught about mycorrhizae, which is the relationship that some mushrooms have with plants. And I learned so much from him about how important it was for forest ecosystems, for their water resilience, for their nutrients, for their disease resilience, that it really helped me get going in bringing ecology into my mushroom classes. So I, yeah, I've been teaching mushrooms since the 70s, mushroom ID and ecology. And one of the only reasons I'm teaching that for Mendocino College is they have no wildflower classes, no tree class. They have no program that, like I developed from College of the Redwoods. And when I retired in 2014, I promised myself I would not go to any more curriculum meetings. I would not go to any meetings mm-hmm. after, you know, 45 years of, of being a teacher at a college, you you don't know all the kind of meetings you have to go to all the time. So I, I, but that's how I got into doing mushrooms, and it, and that's why I'm still doing it because Mendocino College has one class in teaching natural things, and I love mushrooms anyway. And frankly, you get all sorts of people who would never take a class who will come into your mushroom class. Now you do mushroom walks and you take them out and over the course of four sessions, four full afternoons, yes. right? Yes. And you do that at the, typically after it first starts to rain here, here in California, Northern California, we have rainy seasons. So it typically starts to rain maybe in the fall, maybe we might get a big rain in September and then again, it'll start semi-raining in October, November, and then we get mushrooms, right? Yeah, I mean, we used to have a lot more rain in September, but that seems to have shifted, but we have two classes. One that I teach uh, the last two weeks in October and November, it's called fall mushrooms, and I have a spring mushroom, it's not really spring, but it is a winter mushroom class. I teach that um, in January, February, so that people could at least take two different classes. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be 16 hours of lecture, and that's the way it's taught. in Ukiah and Lakeport, and they have one little field trip. But it has been pretty much my mantra and my career is that the way to get people to really learn is to immerse them in it. Yeah. Uh, and also there's a lot of people who actually don't learn well sitting behind a desk, you standing up there, you know, pontificating. I think that shows. I think uh, people love this class. Uh, they do. For those who want to show up and take it. I. I <laughs> Now, I want to change the subject a little bit because I saw that, um, or I read that you had been in, also involved about 20 years ago or so, Georgia Pacific, which was a, it is a giant um, uh, sort of or timber company. Um, they closed down a giant mill site here in Fort Bragg, California. This had been going on for years. And this uh, sort of went along with a, a general demise of logging here on the California North Coast. Logging continues in other parts of North America, as you well know. But here on the North Coast, it meant that there was a retreat from logging. We just didn't have that much more in the way of resources, I think. Well, 
there really hasn't been a retreat from logging not to like okay because basically what happened is georgia pacific figured out that their profit margin was decreased so their land they sold but you know every timber company whether it's mendocino redwood company or whether it's lime timber they just have continued on with the logging the mills have closed down but that's here on the coast but but logging has continued, okay. um, it, but not at the rate. That, one of the reasons that Georgia Pacific, I mean, Jerry Mello once told me at that Redwood summer, you know, everybody was asking for sustained logging and was harping on him. He was a, the forester for Georgia Pacific. And he said, we never promised to do sustainable logging. And, and we're not. And, and they didn't. Which sustainable logging means that you're logging at a rate that there's something left that you can keep doing it. Yeah. And so what you said is kind of right in that people logged all the old growth out. When I got here, the old growth was in the 70s. They were still logging it. They had blew off bark of the old growth trees in the mill with water. And so we still had old growth. They were still logging it in the 70s. That mill shut down and they did just second growth. And then they pretty much logged most of the big second growth. And then at that point, Georgia Pacific said, we're out of here. And uh, they did leave. It really took a turn. I mean, for our economy, and at the same time, yeah. the ocean started getting warmer and more acid. And you know, the the fisher people couldn't make a living. You know, so certainly our economy really had to shift towards whether it's ecotourism or something that we had left here that people who remained here could make a living. From. Right, right. And GP Georgia Pacific also left their mill site. And there yes. was some problems with that. And you were called in, I believe, to consult and yeah, talk about yeah. Now there's some major environmental problems left with their mill site. Correct. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was hired by Georgia Pacific um, because they needed to do cleanup of their site. They basically, you know, in that era, people like tossed garbage and, you know, equipment over the edge into the ocean. I mean, you know, Glass Beach happened when the people of Fort Bragg used to do that. That was, you know, the garbage dump. That's how all the glass showed up and became pretty. Well, Georgia Pacific did the same thing all along their area. And anytime you've got petroleum products, you know, and you're burning plastic, which they did in the powerhouse, you know, you create things like dioxin. So before they could actually clean up, they actually needed some environmental review of areas that they were going to be trying to bulldoze here and there. So they hired me as a botanist to go over their 400 acres and basically give them a plant list what was there, identify places where there are rare and endangered species. Um, and, you know, they, they were actually really great to work with, um, the, the company that was cleaning up. And my role was just to mark the areas where there were endangered species so that they could try to avoid them in their cleanup. Mm -hmm. So okay. that that's what I did. Yeah. So I know another area that's not maybe related in a way is, is you've worked in weed identification and weed control on sure. the North Coast. And one of the major weeds that we have here is the Scotch broom. Now, um, there are whole areas of Casper, California, which is between Mendocino and Fort Bragg, that are infested with scotch broom. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about scotch broom, how it got here, and what the prospectus is. Yeah, for so scotch broom. we'll back up again. Please so do. there is a, a shrub. There are three shrubs here on the coast. 
bright yellow, pea-like, lupin-like flowers, bright yellow. Uh, mostly what was in Casper was gorse. Mm-hmm. Gorse, okay. Which was that spiny plant brought over from Europe. It originally was brought over like what they have in Europe, um, where it's well-behaved, by the way, because I've seen it in Spain, and it's very well-behaved there. It doesn't get out of control. But here, they were hoping to use it like they did there for hedgerows. Mm-hmm. But um, as is the case when you bring um, a species that doesn't have its own natural ecosystem limits on it, you know, insects and, and diseases that might keep the population down, it expanded and just, just took over areas in, in Casper especially. In fact, in Bandon, Oregon, it did that, and it's so volatile that when it some burnt up, it burnt the town of Bandon, Oregon. So people were very anxious about the gorse. Uh, two other yellow flowering plants, one's called Scotch broom and one's called French broom. They, they look alike to the people. Most people is just a shrub with yellow flowers. They're different, however. So anyway, both of those are sold by nurseries. Um, as ornamental plants, and people would plant them in their garden, and then the seeds, um, legumes grow in sunny kind of disturbed sites, like lupins mm-hmm. do that too, okay? The oldest lupin seed that's been known to be able to germinate is 10,000 years old. So gorse, scotch broom, and French broom seeds get out there, and they live for hundreds of years. So what we do when we create pastures and open areas and along roadsides we're creating perfect places for these plants and then you know you've got the the tractors that that are used in logging they basically drive in areas where there's some and then they drive into a new place in the woods and then all the seeds come off the tractor wheels and you'll see french broom and scotch broom all through jackson state forest along the roadside because it comes in on the equipment and, and so these are kind of invasive, exotic plants that we keep perpetuating their open, sunny, disturbed environment. If I were to say to you, uh, Teresa, could you help me manage my, my scotch broom problem in my garden? What would you say? In your garden? Yeah, or if they were, at, you know, like they were on the periphery and coming Yeah, out I mean, basically, they, they're, they can't grow where there's shade. You know, okay. um, so if there's any way that the habitat could become a shady environment and there's actually a, a weed tool that you can actually pop the roots out of the ground and then you have to you have to actually keep going with it. There's two things. Is it a managed landscape you're going to do or is it is it you're trying to make it go back to nature? If it's a managed landscape, you know, people do use you know, goats and sheep and such. You have to be a little careful, though, because all uh, the scotch broom and the French broom leaves are toxic. You'll oh. kill a rabbit by, by feeding it to them. But, you know, it's, it's hard when we take a natural environment and then we disturb the soil so the native plants can't outcompete the broom. Um, it's, it is a hard thing. In gardens, it's easy. You just pull it out like any other weed, you know, and keep it, keep it mowed down. But in wild areas along roads that you want to keep the road open, much more difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I taught weeds as one of the many classes I taught for college, the Redwoods, because, you know, there weren't that many people here. So I would have to keep coming up with new classes because people would like, I've taken everything you've taught, Teresa. And I think, oh. now what am I going to teach? <laughs> That's how I kept teaching all these new classes because, you know, I ended up having these people who were just waiting for the newest class. Lucky because Martha Racine, who taught 
Spanish and Spanish culture. She she got me into teaching. We were able to you know take classes to the Galapagos and to Costa Rica um, and to um, Yucatan. You know, so it was a kind of combination Spanish culture and and um, nice uh, ecology classes. And you know, I, it, one thing living here has showed me is you know I kept having to diversify in order to keep my job because. It's like everybody taking everything I'd ever done, so I'd have to figure out something else to come along. Besides, you know, Bio 1, which I taught, or, or microbiology, which I taught to nursing schools. When we had the nursing program, it was much more solid um, yeah. because I taught in that, and that was half of my curriculum. But yeah. uh, later yeah. on, I kept having to come up with new things. Well, I know you've been involved in dog training, uh, and you and uh, Lupin here are uh, good friends. Tell us a little bit about what you've, what you've done and how you got involved in training animals. Sure. Uh, well, I started out when I worked at the pack station training horses because I had been taking horseback riding lessons. My parents would never give me a horse, but I took lessons for years. And when I worked at the pack station, one of my jobs morphed into training horses, and we had lots of dogs. I loved horses and dogs. And in fact, at Davis, I really wanted to work with wildlife and animals. But what I found out when we worked with animals, either the fish and game people, it was all about hunting. If you wanted to be a zoologist, you know, you did a lot of cutting things up. So I, I ended up into botany because I wanted to be outside in wild environments. But I've always had dogs. So we raised German shepherds. We raised and sold and bred Newfoundlands for a while. Um, then when Rob was killed, we I continued with... German Shepherds, and then I decided to get, instead of AKC dogs, I got a dog from the Humane Society, Max, who was a lab uh, healer dog, and I ended up sneaking him into my mushroom classes and other classes where he would he would come along and just kind of be perfect, and I'd tell people, he's working, don't touch him, and he would, especially when we got, when I got lost, I wouldn't tell anybody, I'd say, okay, Max, and he'd, he'd take take us back to where we were. So I had been sneaking in into class in 2014. Uh, he was old, 14 years. I knew I needed to get a puppy. So I went on to petfinders.com, found this little baby Lupin dog who was in Covalo, uh, five weeks been picked up astray in Covalo. I was teaching flowers out at Glass Beach. The Covalo Humane Society drove up in the van and handed me this little dog. So it's March 2014, I retired in May, and one of my very good friends, Sarah Quentin, retired vet, said, you wanna go take the dog to dog class? And I thought, why? You know, I felt I already knew everything about, you know, I didn't need that. And she said, cause it's fun and you're retired. So uh, and I said, who does dog classes? So basically for four months, I took Lupin to their classes and then pretty in uh, Julie's um, helper, Dee Dee Williamson was helping. And then pretty soon, I don't know how this happened. I ended up going from the student into the teacher role. It just kind of happened where all of a sudden I'm helping them in the class. And then uh, right before COVID, um, Dee Dee, you know, said, you want to do these classes together. And so she worked as a veterinary tech. So we started doing them, and then during COVID, Julie stopped doing classes. We continued um, under the auspices of the Evergreen Barn, which is Elaine Mixack, uh, had the insurance for that. And so we, Dee Dee and I, have now been doing this, what, eight years together? And 
so we teach, you know, beginning obedience and fun agility and uh, an obedience sport called rally. And, and I'm trying to morph back into being an assistant, um, but I love doing it. Um, I love working with dogs and people. Really what you're doing is teaching the people how to be gentle but firm and to give exercise boundaries and love. In fact, it's just like raising kids, frankly. It's treating everybody respectfully. But dogs are, are um, I mean, I've been, I've had a dog my whole life. And, um, but as always, once you start looking at something, you find there's so much to learn. And I have learned a tremendous amount, you know, dealing with fearful dogs and anxious dogs. And our dogs are mirrors to our souls and how our behavior. So they, they tend to take all their cues from us. And we have often had a dog who is very fearful and as soon as what we get in the dog in the class, the dog calms down because we're calm. So I've learned a lot about life, frankly, from dogs. <laughs> Great. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> And, you know, as we wrap things up here, um, apropos of, of learning things about life, uh, you're an environmental science teacher, you've been an ecologist, a botanist, you've led tours of mushrooms. I know you don't want to be called a mycologist, <laughs> but your understanding of the environment, uh, including um, helping with dogs and animals, you have, you have an overall notion of the natural world. And I was wondering if perhaps you could sort of give us some, you know, words of wisdom about your, your feelings about the environment. I, I guess to me, it's really important for people to understand that the world, the earth really doesn't evolve around humans, that everything from the weather to clean water to a lot of things to clean air, people take for granted that they actually think that it's always going to be that way and that there aren't or other things in life, other living organisms that are actually causing clean air and clean water. And that when we basically uh, take a wild area and eliminate everything there, we have eliminated the health of the planet that we're living in. And um, I have become so understanding of this. And in my whole career has been trying to teach people about ecological relationships and you know, why you, you shouldn't be, you know, logging and taking out all the, everything but redwoods because the other species are so important to the fire resistance and the health resistance to the ecosystem. My philosophy is just trying to open some doors to people's minds about the value of something besides themselves, the value of the wild species and organisms that they've never heard of or macroscopic and most importantly that we really there's so much we don't know and if there's any way we could do there's no way we could do no harm but if we could do less harm it it would be better for all of us and that's kind of my philosophy of whether it's growing food or what I eat or what I buy or what I drive um, and as Entering the 70th year, I mean, I'm 70 this year, 71 next year. I'm trying to take a little bit of step back in my conservation efforts because I'm also trying to be not so much about around anger, violence, and polarity. But I think, I think one of the most powerful things you can do is just to live in a way that you're modeling for other people. And as one ages, I think it's 
a very good role to show support, but the modeling is more important than anything else. People respond better to watching somebody do correctly than being told what to do. Wonderful. Well, on those words, I think we'll stop. <laughs> Teresa Showers, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, learning about your life, career, and your love of, of the world. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug. Thanks to our activist of the show, ecologist, botanist, and environmental scientist, Teresa Scholers. Our production team includes tech meister producer Marshall Brown, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, logo designer Daniel Stieglitz, and student interns Max Oatney and Frey Barty. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an outlook, both local and international, on the arts, and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website thesnapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today. 